Hey everyone, it is Zoe Blasky here. Welcome to another episode of the Motherkind Podcast, the show that's going to help you navigate the massive challenges of life as a modern mother with more confidence, clarity, and self-awareness. You know, I really do believe the most inspiring thing we can do for our children is to become empowered confident and resilient. And this podcast exists to help you do just that. This week, I am speaking to Dr. Emma Svanberg. She is an award-winning clinical psychologist and author, and I'm lucky enough to say a friend of mine. Emma and I created the Family Reset Plan together in the pandemic, and we have been supporters and good friends ever since. And I was really happy to get her back on the podcast this week to celebrate her new book, Parenting for Humans. In a way, Emma's new book is called a parenting book, but it's sort of an anti-parenting book because it doesn't really have the tips and the tricks and the scripts that a lot of parenting books have. This book and Emma's work is all about us as the parents. So Emma teaches us and shows us in this episode how to explore with compassion and understanding for ourselves what we bring to the parenting journey, our hopes, views, values, relationships, upbringing and how we can use that knowledge and self-awareness to get confidence, not only in ourselves, but to parent our children and parent ourselves as well. The other thing that I love about this episode and about Emma's work is that she talks about parenting the messy, unpredictable, complicated children that we actually have, not the perfect cookie cutter children that maybe we wish we had. I know I wish I had that sometimes. And by tuning into how to really see the child in front of us, rather than to try and mold them into who we think they should be, we can actually start enjoying them for who they really are. And I am definitely here for that. So I really hope that you love the episode. Here it is. I'm excited to tell you that this week's sponsor is dog food company Pooch and Mutt. And the reason I'm excited is because Pooch and Mutt is actually my husband Guy's company. So we are very much keeping it in the family this week. He founded Pooch and Mutt 13 years ago when he created a supplement to help his family dog, Cookie, who had hip dysplasia. She took that supplement, made a full recovery. And so Guy went on to create more supplements, then dog treats and now dog food. I don't think he ever expected 13 years later, it would have grown into the incredible business that it is today, helping millions of dogs all over the world. So something you need to know about my husband Guy is that he is obsessed with health and fitness. He even studied nutrition just to learn more about the ingredients in the food he was making. So at its core, Pooch and Mutt is a health-led company because Guy and the team know that what you eat affects the way you feel and they're pretty obsessed with helping your dog feel amazing and be as happy as they can be. So Pooch and Mutt offers different products to cater for loads of different health conditions and life stages of your dogs. So anxiety, digestive issues, joint health, weight management, skin issues, even dental health. And they range from puppy all the way up to senior. So our dog Pepper is on the joint health food at the moment because she had a little leg operation and her recovery has been incredible on that food. Not even the vet can believe it. 
So if you want to give Pooch and Mutt a try, my very generous husband is offering 25% off for Motherkind listeners. So to get 25% off online, just go to poochandmutt.co.uk, use code MOTHERKIND25. Pop in the code MOTHERKIND25 at poochandmutt.co.uk. And please note that excludes subscriptions. Oh, Emma, welcome to the podcast. We were just laughing because we know each other quite well. I just said we better stop chatting and actually record a podcast rather than just blathering on about what's going on in our lives. So new book is out. How are you feeling? I'm feeling really good. I think that I have been waiting for this kind of opportunity to have discussions with people about the content in the book. And, you know, it came out a week ago as we're recording this. And it's just a really lovely experience to finally have people be able to think about it, discuss it, ask me questions. And, you know, I'm kind of getting messages from people saying, oh, I read this bit and it's really made me think about this aspect of my life. Or, you know, can you tell me a little bit more about this? And that's really nice. You know, that kind of the bit where it becomes a discussion that I've been really kind of waiting for that opportunity, I think. And because I know you so well, I know this book has been brewing in you for a long, long, long time. <laughs> you and I went to a guy for years, haven't we? What was it about this book in particular and this take on parenting that felt so important to you? Yeah, it has been brewing for a very long time, years, in fact. And I think what kind of helped me bring it together into a book was that I really feel like over the past kind of 20 odd years that I've been working with parents, the anxiety in parents, mothers in particular, has grown so much. And I'm going to say even over the past maybe four or five years, where there is this kind of added layer of not only am I parenting, which is a challenge, and I have my expectations and hopes about that, and also, you know, the kind of day-to-day challenges that parenting brings. But now I have this whole other added layer of anxiety about whether I'm doing it well enough, whether I'm meeting these expectations that are so often set by external voices, whether that's parenting books, blogs, podcasts, you know, experts on social media like me. There's so much noise around parenting and so much of it is very directed. So the strategies or techniques to try What I'd noticed more and more in my work with people is that people were coming with their problems, you know, this is my problem, or these are things that are being raised for me along my parenting journey. But in addition to that, I feel like I'm failing at everything because I'm so far from this ideal that is being set by these external pieces of information or external voices. So the main crux of it for me was how do I bring the work that I would do with people in therapy into a broader setting where it's more accessible to people? And essentially a huge part of that is just finding ways to help people trust themselves with their parenting, listening to their own voices a lot more, but also then thinking about what of that information resonates with me and actually is really useful for me and what is it that I want to cast off. And I think that it's a really tricky balance to try and strike as a parent because, you know, there are things that we want to learn and there are strategies that we might want to try. But for me, that has to be based on a foundation of 
what we believe, what we believe is best, what we feel our values are, what we want from our family life. And that might be so different to the kind of things that are out there. And also what's achievable for us, because so much, I mean, we were talking about this before, right? So much of the information that we read is very much based on these ideas of idealized parents who are kind of almost parenting in a vacuum with this impression that we're not doing anything else other than parenting. And for most people, they're just not as well resourced as that advice would lead us to believe. So also something around kind of how do we parent in the circumstances that we actually live in, not in these kind of idealized circumstances where all we're doing is parenting our one very compliant child. That would be the dream, right? (laughs) It's really interesting. I heard you say this the other day that you would think that with the increased parenting knowledge, information, support, tools, scripts, we even get given scripts now on Instagram of exactly what you would think that would lower anxiety. On paper, you would think, okay, so you don't have enough support. You get given loads of support, loads of ideas, loads of knowledge, loads. But what I hear you saying is actually it's had the opposite effect. For some people, so not for everyone, so for some people, actually, that information is really valuable because they will take the bits of it that they agree with or that resonate with them and they'll apply it to their life and they'll probably tweak it a little bit so that if it is a script, maybe they're saying it in their voice, you know, they're saying it in a way that works for them. But they're also applying it to what they believe in, what they're able to manage and what their child actually needs as well, which is the other side of it. Somebody sent me a message saying, you know, I realised that if I read a script that I've read on Instagram, it can be really helpful, but only if I'm saying it at a time when my child really can hear that. And what they'd learned kind of over time was that they'd been almost just, you know, replicating the words that they'd read themselves, but they weren't saying it in a way that their child felt was creating an emotional connection. And actually, I think it becomes like a very cognitive exercise, you know, it's like an intellectual exercise where if we're saying the right things or if we're doing the right things, then hopefully everything's going to be okay. And our child is just there going, well actually, maybe I'm not going to be part of this experiment (laughs) in the way that you want me to be, because I need something different. I don't need those really pretty words. Actually, what I need is for you to just get down on my level and not say anything at all, maybe, or just be with me or just make eye contact or just tune into what it is that I'm actually feeling and help me understand it. It can sort of take away from our own capacity to connect on that very deep emotional level, which is often really what children are looking for. And I think that the reason for that, the reason why it's become so popular is because it helps us feel so much more in control, right? It's like, right, I've got this toolkit. I've got all of these things up my sleeve that I'm going to try because actually underneath all of that, I'm completely overwhelmed by the power of this child's emotions, the overwhelm of parenting in isolation as so many people are doing particularly parenting in circumstances that we've been parenting over the past three plus years, which for many families are just getting harder and harder. You know, when you're feeling overwhelmed, stressed, out of control, it is so attractive to have this very nicely curated information that says, just do these five things and then everything's going to be okay. The problem with that is that we do those five things and if they don't work, then we feel like that we've done wrong. 
like I didn't apply those five things correctly or maybe I didn't say them right or we think maybe my child is a really really difficult child because they're not responding to those beautiful five pieces of information and actually what we'll then do is look for a different solution right we won't then think well maybe I need to just not look for those solutions externally but really think about what's going on for me and my child in this moment we then look for another set of five top tips or we then look for another expert to follow it can really take us away from just being able to think about what's happening in the moment and again it's very attractive to do that when we're overwhelmed because our own feelings can be so much so strong so powerful we want something that is going to help it feel neat and tidy and in control like of course we do but the problem is is that longer term what that leaves us feeling is actually quite disempowered and less trusting of our own instincts. It's complex, isn't it? Like you say, I would put myself in that first camp that I obviously do this podcast. I talk to parenting experts. I think I've got quite good over the years of taking what I like and leaving the rest. But I think where it gets quite complex and nuanced is because of everything that you were talking about, parenting often in isolation with just crazy circumstances going on around people, you know, we're still, I think, recovering post-pandemic. It's so much easier short term to grab a bite-size phrase, word, idea than it is, which is the invitation in your book, which is to do more of that introspection, which takes time it's not a quick fix. It's almost like the sort of shiny, glossy, sparkly thing is what you want to grab. But actually, where the real gold is and the real depth is in the introspection. But I think when people are in that fight or flight, just getting through the day, it's hard sometimes, isn't it, to access that? Okay, I'm going to sit down and think about what's going on for me here. Yeah so hard to access that when you're in that survival state because you're not in a reflective space then you know if you think about what's going on from a brain perspective in those moments you are full of adrenaline you know you're in that amygdala hijack where your nervous system is just saying to you there's a threat here what I know is that for a lot of people there has been such a state of chronic stress throughout the pandemic that so many people are still in that fight, flight, freeze, collapse kind of state. I think that what can feel really scary when you've been in that state for a long time as well is that you know somewhere, maybe unconsciously, that if I do pause, there might be a collapse. You know, it's kind of, a, I need to keep going, I need to keep going, because if I stop, then everything might just crumble. And, you know, people are often needing to be in a survival state because life can be so relentless. What I invite people to do in the book is to do that very, very slowly. And I think that that's something that people can be understandably so afraid of, that introspection, the reflection. There are also lots of questions around what happens if I start really thinking about my parenting. Am I going to find out that actually I'm a terrible parent? Or, you know, was such a question that I get asked all the time. You know, am I going to find out that actually I've broken my child and there's no repair and there's no going back? So the kind of very natural 
anxious thoughts that we tend to have as parents can really get in the way of us stopping and exploring what it is that's going on for us because you know the kind of idea of looking at this stuff can feel really scary and is it going to be painful and is it going to mean that things have to change and actually I'm barely holding on as it is so you know I don't really want to make changes because this is working just for now I think when we do it very slowly and with lots and lots of kind of grounding and safety that I put sort of throughout the book we need to feel that we're kind of being held through it that there is something that's cushioning us from those things that might feel a bit more painful or might bring up difficult feelings. But knowing as well, once you've done that exploration, there is an opportunity then to feel that you're coming to your parenting in a more whole way, in a more kind of grounded way. You're bringing your whole self. You're not trying to push away the parts of you that you don't like very much or the parts of you that you wish weren't there that pop out anyway, right, when we're least expecting it. So those bits are coming out for us, but just in a less controlled way. Once we have explored all of those different aspects of ourselves and our histories, actually we then make much more conscious choices about how we're showing up day to day. So it might be for lots of people a painful or difficult process, but if we can feel supported through that process, then you know there is such an opportunity to feel like you're parenting with your whole self. It's true about starting slow, starting small. And it's also a truism, isn't it? That the things that create the most, I want to say change, but I don't know if that's the right word, that create the most impact do take time and they do take self-reflection. And I feel like in a way we're sort of, I think social media has obviously driven this, but in a way now where that the gift of taking years to unravel something or, you know, just asking yourself one question a day. And we've really lost that idea. I think there's so much around this instant transformation <laughs> that is sort of sold to us and packaged to us. And I think you're dead right. I think it does us a disservice. You say at the start of the book, we cannot fully enjoy parenting our children until we understand ourselves. Tell us about that. Because I think a lot of people will be like, what? I guess that kind of goes on from what I was saying before. When there are bits of us, big bits of us that we don't acknowledge, you know, what we tend to do as we're growing up is that there are parts of us that we just kind of wish weren't there, right? The parts of us that we just don't really like very much. Like angry bits, jealous bits. Angry bits, yeah, jealous bits, judgmental, critical bits. In our parenting, that will happen kind of so much more because we really want to show up in our parenting in these really kind of idealised ways often. You know, we have an idea in our minds of the kind of parent that we want to be. We often have ideas about the kind of child that we're going to have, that we will kind of push away the parts of us that don't fit with that. So, for example, if we have had an experience ourselves as a child where we had a very angry parent, it's very common for somebody to then push away any kind of angry feelings and be like, that is not going to come into my parenting. I'm going to be super zen all the time. I'm always going to you know, speak to my child with kindness, gentleness, connection. And then inevitably, because these are parts that have been within us all that time and when we're in those kind of very stressful parenting moments when automatic reactions will pop out we'll suddenly find that very angry voice maybe a voice that really has echoes of our own parent just flying out of our mouth because we haven't looked at those angry bits of us and we've pretended that they're not there 
it can feel horrifying. It's a shocking, hard experience to then do the thing that you've always promised yourself that you're never going to do. What tends to then happen is that we feel so guilty and ashamed that this bit of us is not under our control, that it has popped out, that we try and push it away even harder. Like, no, that angry bit is just going straight back, you know, behind a locked door. I'm not going to ever do that again. I'm a terrible person. You know, probably something critical will then come in. Lots of feelings of shame. What we know is that those kind of negative feelings actually will make it more likely for that angry bit of us to pop out again because actually we're just feeling quite vigilant and hyper aroused. So that automatic response of anger is actually much more likely to pop out again. And then we can end up very quickly in a bit of a cycle where we feel like we're not parenting in the way that we want to. Also, we can see that we're responding to our child in a way or our child is having a response that we don't want them to have. Often we'll then think about or somewhere whether it's conscious or not what we felt like as a child being shouted at or receiving anger and that will take us back into those historical memories or historical feelings and a lot of this is happening very unconsciously right it's not like we shout and then think oh that really reminds me of that time when my dad shouted at me like that or actually I'm really noticing that I'm feeling so ashamed and I'm pushing anger away It's all just happening very unconsciously, very automatically. And then it spirals and we end up feeling like we're not in control of our emotions. We're not in control of what we're doing as a parent. And we feel like we're letting our child down. If we can open that locked door, look at that anger, think about what is our relationship with anger? Why does anger pop out in those moments? What was it like for me as a kid when anger was directed at me? Why is it that I don't want my child to experience that? What does it mean to me when anger does pop out? Is there a message that it's bringing? Maybe something to do with the fact that I need a little bit more support or I need for things to feel a bit less relentless. How does my child actually feel when I'm angry? Because often we can almost insert our own experiences into our children. But when we're working really hard to compensate for things that we received ourselves as children actually our own children can often feel very different to the way that we felt maybe that child is not at all scared and they're just a bit like oh you know mum's just lost it for a second but in a moment she'll apologize and whatever I can let that go so and I know it's very complex but I suppose in some ways the key point of all of it is just that when we're less afraid of these parts of us that we've been trying to push away and really kind of almost befriend them get to know them think about what it is that they're bringing to us then we can almost bring them into our daily life. They become part of our whole selves. There's not a bit of us that we're trying to get rid of or push away. That concept very much comes from Dick Schwartz's internal family systems where, you know, and I know that's something that you're really interested in as well, you know, that sense of actually getting to know these characters in the book, I call them characters. We might also call them like defensive strategies or Dick Schwartz calls them parts. Just that sense of there being these parts of our personality or strategies that we've developed over the years that because we don't like them, we tend to ignore them. But actually, they were developed for a really good reason. And they're very adaptive and they're very helpful. At the time that they were created, it was to help to protect us. It's almost like having a conversation with these parts of us and being able to say, well, I I know that you're there and I know that you pop out and it's not really what I want to happen in my life right now. So what do I need in order to be able to update that angry part of me so that actually when it does arise, it can arise in a way that feels 
a little bit more like meeting my values as I am right now as a parent or as an adult. There's a lot in what you just said, isn't it? I mean, it's basically like you just explained 10 years of therapy in a paragraph. It's brilliant because I think this is so core to what I think parenting is really about, which is self-parenting. It really is. I couldn't agree more because it's in those moments where you are faced with an actual real life child who means so very much to you that all of your own stuff gets brought up. Of course it does. This was my experience. I believe that there's a part of me, of us, that continually wants to grow and develop and accept all those parts of me. And so I get these little children that, you know, my girls, my God, like there is nothing that shows me those exiled bits of me more than those two kids, I swear to God. And in that moment, it's like, I feel like I have a choice. And I would say one time out of 10, I make the quote unquote, the choice I want to make, right? Which is shut down that part in them that's making me uncomfortable, triggered, whatever word works for people, shut it down, punish them, do something, make it stop. Or (laughs) the other one, which uh, one out of 10 times I might do, which is, huh, interesting. What is this? And it's so fascinating to me how my two girls really do embody the things that I want to work on. So I want to work on my boundaries, speaking my truth, owning my voice. They do that. They're like masters at that. But I find it really uncomfortable when they do it to me. But isn't that interesting though, Zoe, because they're doing that also because there is something that you have allowed them to then do. Like even though oh that feels a bit weird actually they're able to do that because it's been encouraged and accepted in your home so and I think that's something that we don't really talk about enough that we might have these goals in parenting but at the same time even when we feel like we're meeting them there will be feelings of ambivalence about that because those little kid parts in us are then just going hang on a second I was never allowed to get away with that so you know the mum part of you is going yep bring it on. You're setting those boundaries. I love that you're telling me I can't give you a kiss or I love that you're speaking your mind. Yeah, that's what they say. My Rose says, I don't like kisses, but you may give me a high five. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to scream. I literally do everything for you. You won't let me kiss you. And then the other part of me is like, oh my God, you're incredible. You are incredible. But you know, it brings up so much, right? So the adult part of you, right? The mum part of you is going brilliant, Rose, like I love it. The little girl part of you might be then going, that's just not allowed. That's not allowed. You don't get to reject your own mother when she's offering you a kiss. You know, so again, thinking about the experiences that you might have had, social expectations that we were raised with. This is something that I really want to get across in the book because we're not just parenting as parents. We're parenting as whole human beings who've had experiences that are outside of our own childhoods, that we are people who exist in particular society and cultures and we'll have other things going on in our lives too that we bring into our parenting. I mean, it's been a huge conversation right over the past few years about consent, women's bodies, gender-based violence is such a huge topic of conversation. When you're parenting well, little girls or boys, you know, there's so many questions I think around at the moment for parents about how do I do this in a way that means that my child can feel safe, can also keep other children and adults safe. You know, how do I allow them to express themselves wholeheartedly? 
so many questions around how we do that. And that in itself will raise things for us as women, you know, thinking about situations that we might have been in where we didn't feel like we were able to hold a boundary, thinking about the kind of cultural social expectations that were around for us as girls, they are very stirring topics. So that one statement, no, I don't want to give you a kiss. I mean, that brings up layers and layers and layers of different experiences for you in that one moment. And of course, in that one moment, you're not going to be able to go, hang on a second, Rose, I just need to sit down and process what happened to me as a child and how I feel about gender-based violence and consent and female bodies, you know, that all of those feelings will be somewhere in your body, feeling potentially a bit confused or a bit overwhelmed or, you know, there's so much that could be stirred up there. That's why I think, like we were saying before, it's so important to take it slowly, right? Because actually there is no quick solution to figuring all of that stuff out, to figuring out where you sit with all of that, what you want to model to your own children, Those are topics that will take months, years to figure out, will change as our culture changes too. You know, thinking about what Rose might be getting taught at school, that's completely different to what we would have been taught at school. It's so complex and so multifaceted, which is why, you know, those kind of quick solutions can't ever get us to where we need to be because they will change. Our own solutions, our own ways of responding are going to change as we change and our children grow. And in some ways, knowing that, that actually we can just slow down and think about what happened in that moment. How do I feel about what happened in that moment? Is there anything that that raised for me that I want to go away and think about or explore further? And knowing that you've got a lifetime to figure this stuff out. It's not that you need to do it that evening. You know, actually, this is something that is your lifelong relationship with your child. And, you know, you can always change your mind as, you know, you kind of find out new information or you discover different things about yourself or them. You can always change your mind. And I think that's something that we're really good at doing in our generation, you know, being able to go back to children and say, you know, I used to do this. And now that I know this, I want to do things a bit differently. And I think that's something that in social media also, that these are the benefits of social media where, there is much more of a narrative around that we can make mistakes, we can pivot, we can be flexible, that it's okay to be able to go back to our children and be open about the things that we wish that we'd done differently in an age-appropriate way, of course. But, you know, being able to say, actually, I'm learning just like you are. Yeah, and I think that's why your book and your work is so important because we know more about the first five years, the first seven years in particular, I think, than we've ever known. I think that's an amazing thing. Ultimately, big picture, that is a great thing that we understand the importance of that. And in a way, the importance of parenting, which I think just wasn't really understood, certainly not a couple of generations ago. But I think that does create then this pressure. And then we think, okay, so I understand, take validating emotions, right? I've been on such a journey with this. I understand I don't want to shut down my kids' emotions. It makes complete cognitive sense to me that if I do that, I don't think that's not a hard concept. I'm just going to accept all of my children's emotions, hold boundaries, but I'm not going to shame them. It's then when you go and try and do that... (laughs) That's when the fun really starts. And that's exactly what you're talking to. Because what then happens is all of that stuff gets stirred up in 
us. And I think that ultimately, if I was going to summarize your book, which would be hard because it is so nuanced and deep and incredible, it would probably be that, that actually we're not robots. And we have to remember that with all the strategies in the world, frankly, if we can't have a way of unpacking what's coming up for us, it's just going to be more painful. But also that's a relationship, right? Isn't it funny that we have this almost expectation that and maybe it's something, and we were talking before about women and you know, lots of the ways that women or those who are socialized as women are kind of brought up, you know, in terms of people pleasing, in terms of meeting other people's needs and kind of all of those different things that come up for us at different times or have come up in different generations. You know, the way that we can take that into our parenting and almost expect of ourselves in this relationship, I am going to show up like this in this idealized way i'm going to get it right all the time i'm going to validate my children's emotions perfectly they're going to feel completely understood by me 100% of the time like we don't think about the fact that we've got to cook or we've got to tidy up or we've got a job to do or actually we're in conflict in our marital relationship or you know whatever all of the other stuff that's going on we just think in this relationship we're just going to show up as these perfect parents like robots, like you said, in all of our other relationships, there is an expectation that it's going to be messy, that there's going to be conflict, that there's going to be moments where we don't feel understood, where we don't feel validated. For me, so much of that is around this expectation that is a kind of fallacy in a way. I talk a lot about myths, right, in the book, the kind of myths that we have, the narratives that we've been raised with. It's interesting that you were saying we know more about parenting now because so many of the concepts in the book go back to Freud in the 1920s, Donald Winnicott in the 1950s. These are old ideas that I think went out of fashion with behaviourism. We now have much more scientific evidence with the ability to see brain images to kind of know the impact of different kind of parenting behavior on children's later development. But those are not new ideas. These are really old ideas from psychoanalysis, right? Donald Winnicott talks about this idea of not feeling like we are to mold our children. And he actually says, you know, this is a quote at the beginning of the book that some people think that, I'll paraphrase, that their children are like clay in the hands of a potter, that we are molding our children. The expectation that that places on the child is that they are our outcome. We know that we are successful parents if our children are behaving in certain ways. That shows us that we are achieving what we want to achieve as parents. But of course, it's so much messier than that, right? Our children also bring their whole selves into our relationships and they are never going to be the kind of moldable, compliant objects. And if they are, actually, that's kind of a worry. We don't want children to be compliant. We want them to have their own minds and their own voices and, and to feel accepted in their whole selves. And I think that that fallacy, that kind of idea that that's our role as parents to mould our children and that they will then be the outcome of our success, it can set us up with so many expectations, so much pressure, because as soon as our child breaks the mould in some way, we're like, oh, what's going on here? This is not what we were expecting. Whereas if we're thinking about this as a relationship between two people that is messy, complicated, that there will be discord, there will be disconnection, but essentially it's about building a relationship together and both of you are equal partners in that, then you know we can think about 
how not only are those moments when we could slightly get it wrong or feel disconnected, not only are they acceptable part of parenting, they're actually a necessary part of parenting because that is how you build a relationship through the mistakes, through the arguments, through the you don't understand, well, okay, let me understand, help me understand. That's how we actually get to know each other and connect with each other. Not through the, I've perfectly validated your emotions and you feel understood all the time. Because first of all, that's impossible. But also that is skipping out all of the messy bits of us. And they're the bits that make us human and brilliant and interesting. It's almost like we need to just get rid of the word parenting and replace it with relationship building. Well, it's reciprocal, isn't it? It's a reciprocal relationship. That you hope will last a lifetime. Like that's my hope that I have a really amazing relationship with my girls my whole life. And that is something that is very generational. It's very cultural. You know, what is a parent? The idea that parenting is something that we do is actually a fairly new idea. In most cultures and throughout history, parents were people who had children. The idea of parenting is actually a a fairly new idea in terms of history. And you look culturally around the world that idea that parents do things to their children is actually quite unusual compared to other countries and cultures. A quick word from this week's sponsor, Athletic Greens. AG1 provides support in five crucial areas of health, energy, immunity, gut health, hormonal and neural support and healthy ageing. The one I want to chat to you about today is immunity because it is so hard as mothers when we get ill. Often, I want to say all of us, but maybe not, often we don't have the luxury of going to bed for three days to recover. And this is one of the massive benefits that I've seen since taking AG1. I have been ill considerably less despite the bugs and germs that the children bring home from school and nursery. And interestingly, I did get really ill over Christmas and I realised it's because I was so out of routine, I wasn't taking my AG1 every day. So now I am back on it, on the daily, without fail, and I haven't been ill since. Touch some wood, everyone. So to make it easy, Athletic Grains is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash motherkind. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash motherkind to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively and therapy is a space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Therapy is just an incredible, safe, non-judgmental space. I absolutely love it. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule, which I think as busy mums is what we all need. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash motherkind today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash motherkind. I remember when I was first, Jessie would have been little and I really dived into this idea. I think my sort of gateway drug was Dr. Shafali because she talks about this quite well. She says, your child is not a blank canvas for you to paint your ideals and your dreams on. 
actually your job as your parent is just to facilitate them becoming their whole selves. And I really remember that mindset shift in me. And it was quite a big shift. I remember being like, ah, because it's a completely different way of looking at. And of course, you know, we have to teach our kids for skills, right? Like, you know, how to use cutlery and all of that stuff. We're not talking about that. We're talking about this on a deeper emotional level. And I think it depends. I was really thinking about, I think it depends on whether you believe your child comes fully formed as in they are who they are. And that's my belief is that they are like a whole little person with their own hopes, dreams, personality. And my job is to almost usher them through helping them keep as much of that intact as I possibly can. I remember where I was actually, I was sat by the pond in Clapham where I used to live when I was reflecting on this and writing about it and realizing it. And it was like a bit of a bombshell moment for me to see it that differently. And it takes pressure off. It does, because your job is then to, well, what I say in the book is that you're holding them, not molding them. You know, you're sort of offering them that support through their own journey. You're not the one who is deciding that journey for them and ushering them into the direction that you choose for them. Of course, lots of parents do do that. And it's interesting to see how children will respond differently to that. Some children will comply, some children will push back sometimes they'll push back in very healthy ways sometimes they push back in ways that feel more destructive to the relationship but children are very good at letting us know actually this is not who I am this person that you are pushing me into that is not who I am as they grow of course what we know from attachment is that in order to stay close to us which is essentially their number one safety behavior they will then internalize some of those parts of them that feel less acceptable to us so they learn that quite quickly which goes back to what we were saying before there's exactly those parts that come back in us Those are the parts that come back in us, the bits that have been pushed away, the bits that have felt unacceptable, the bits that, for whatever reason, we've tried to shut off. I mean, I find that it's a kind of fascinating and devastating concept all at the same time, right? The way that in order to make sure that children maintain closeness to us, they will take not only the parts of them that feel unacceptable, but they'll also internalise the parts of us that they feel are unacceptable, like the bits of us that aren't meeting their needs. It's a really interesting dynamic that occurs between a parent and a child where if we're not meeting a child's needs for whatever reason, a child will not, and it's not a conscious thought, of course, but a child will not think, oh, my parent is incapable of meeting this need in me. They'll think there's something about me that means that my parent can't do that. So I must be bad or broken or flawed in some way. When we're able to articulate to our children, this is what is coming up for me. This is why I'm not meeting that need in so many words. You know, actually, I'm really sorry that I shouted there because I was shouted at a lot when I was a child, but that's not something that I want to be doing to you. And I am really trying to work on that. And, you know, how did that feel for you? So that you can repair those kind of inevitable ruptures or discords that happen. That allows the child to see that that is yours. It's not theirs. This is the second part of the book or the second point, because the reason you asked me this at the beginning, how does it make us enjoy parenting more? Is because not only are we bringing our whole selves then and we're kind of accepting of all of those parts of us, it also means that we're not giving them to our children to deal with. Our children then are not carrying our burdens on our behalf. And then they can show up in our relationship as their whole selves too. 
you know, and of course, children are going to carry some of our burdens. Like that is just part of parenting. We are not going to break every cycle. We are going to create our own problems. We are going to give them things that we wish we hadn't. Like that is just an inevitability. But when we're able to talk about that and have those conversations, at some point they can say to us, do you know what, you can have this back because it's not mine. And that is such a gift to give to a child or in any relationship the acknowledgement and welcoming even the idea that you can take something back that you might have inadvertently handed over to them because then they get to embrace all of those parts of them you know they don't have to have so many you know exiled parts of them or the bits of them that they're pushing away because they know first of all maybe not all of them belong to them but also because they felt accepted that those parts of them are acceptable because it's okay to be flawed and messy and make mistakes. I like the way you say that it's heartbreaking about the adaptations that we make. That's how I feel about it in a way. I just wish it wasn't, but it's so interesting, isn't it? That cycle. You know, if I think about my own self with this you know that part of me once I understood that people pleasing part of me is just an adaptation that I made in order to keep my caregivers close right that's an adaptation that I made and I think of it as like you know like there's Russian dolls there's the core me and then I've layered on these things to help me stay close and to dance around the unwritten rules of my family growing up where it gets absolutely fascinating is just kind of what we've been talking about the whole conversation is then that gets activated in any relationship, particularly in the relationship. And then I get to choose to, in a way, repeat that, right? Which would just be looking like people pleasing or not allowing my children to say what they want in that example I was given with Rose. Or because I've done a little bit of like you say, that self-reflection, understanding myself, then I give myself a little bit of a chance not to do that which is why in that interaction with Rose I've got that little bit of spaciousness now where I cannot leap into you sort of make a choice it becomes more just choice yeah and I think that's the thing with what you're saying and with my experience actually of having that self acceptance awareness knowledge whatever words we put to it I think it gives you a choice and without that I don't think you tell me I don't think we have much of a choice because we're just sort of unconsciously doing what we know what to do right the reason that happens is because of our stress response which is automatic when you have any kind of unresolved I'm going to say unresolved trauma unresolved childhood trauma trauma can feel like a really big word you know it's just unresolved stuff right stuff that kind of felt uncomfortable right? We've all got loads of baggage. So, you know, these kind of little wounds or little things that happen to us that we haven't necessarily really looked at. We know now there's a lot written about this, that that kind of lives on in our body. It lives on in an unconscious way. It lives on in our limbic system, in our brain, right? So that is our amygdala response, our survival mode, that stress response that comes up very automatically. When we're making conscious choices, that's because we're using our executive functioning, the frontal lobes of the brain. That's where we do our thinking, our reflecting, our rationalizing. That is the part of the brain that allows us to inhibit those impulses. So essentially, in those moments, if we're touched, if that stuff is touched in some way, that activates our limbic system, that activates our amygdala response. It tells our body in some way there is a threat. 
the threat might be to our ego. The threat might be to that little kid in us that we haven't really spoken to yet, you know, who's had experiences that get very touched by our parenting experiences in the moment. Essentially, that's what we're talking about, right? When we talk about triggers, we're talking about something's triggered our limbic system response, that kind of activation mode. What happens when we're in that survival state is that those frontal lobes just disappear. So we don't have a choice because everything in our body is saying there's a threat and we need to respond to that to get us back to a place of safety. What we know is that safety just means familiarity. It might not necessarily be this is what is actually going to make me feel safer in the moment. It's just here I am on this very familiar loop that feels really comfortable to me because I've walked that path many times before. That's our amygdala hijack. Then we respond in a way that we don't necessarily want to. It's later on when our frontal lobes come back online that we just go, wow, what just happened? And then we might go back, process, and in that moment, the processing is what kind of helps us get it out of our emotional brain, our limbic system, and into that more rational, conscious place. If we don't do that, then it remains in that amygdala response, in that very survival mode stress response. So that's kind of technically what's happening when we're exploring, when we're doing that self-reflection, we're taking that stuff out of the survival parts of our nervous system or the limbic system in our brain. And we're basically transporting them into our long-term memory stores. We can update them then. We can say, actually, I don't need to respond like that because I'm not a little girl anymore. Actually, now I'm an adult and this is how I want to respond You know, we can use techniques that will help us to stay in our frontal lobes, to stay in that more rational, reasonable part of our brain. And those are the bits that help us respond with choice, with consciousness. It sounds really complicated. I'm talking about all of the way that the brain works and our kind of nervous system responses. Essentially, it's just about taking the automatic into something that feels conscious. And the only way we can do that is by looking at the stuff. As you were talking, what was coming up for me was I was imagining me, something was happening in my life, parenting, let's say, and I was reversing into the brick wall, like every time and it was smashing the bumper. And then I was getting into the car and I was doing it again and it was smashing into the bumper. And then I was getting in, it was smashing into the bumper. And then, as you said, the word self-reflection, I got out the car (laughs) and I started to dismantle the wall or I started to rearrange the wall. So that the next time I reversed, I wasn't hitting it. And I was like, that is essentially what I see, what the pictures were coming up around your words, was that we do the same thing. We keep bumping into the same over and over and over. And that is the power of self-reflection. Unsexy as it is, annoying as it is, a little bit of time as it takes, it does stop you doing the same thing over and over and over again. Yes. And I'm going to add to your analogy, Zoe, you've got to look in the rear view mirror to know that that wall is there in the first place. And that's why, you know, we have to look back if we want to make progress, you know, in order to be able to really know what the wall is, we need to know that it's there in the first place. And that's the bit that people are really scared of for very good reasons, because like we said before, it's painful, it's difficult. It can feel really complicated. We don't quite know how to do it. But, you know, being able to just see and just knowing that it's there. You know, there's a very popular analogy that I use in the book where we're talking about trauma, which is the cupboard analogy. You know, that when we have our experiences, we have all that stuff, we shove it in the cupboard. And, you know, what happens to a very full cupboard, eventually it pops out. Things just fall out kind of on top of our heads when we really don't want that to happen. 
essentially when we're looking at our stuff, when we're looking in the rear view mirror, it's just about opening that cupboard. Sometimes you might need someone to hold your hand when you do it and pulling it out piece by piece, being able to look at what it is. Do I want to keep that? Do I want to get rid of it? And then am I going to then fold it neatly up and put it away? And essentially that's what we're doing when we're moving something into our working memory. You know, we're, we're neatly folding up the stuff, putting it away, but feeling like, you know, it's not going to just fall out of the cupboard and hit us on the head. It's there. I understand it's there. And I understand it in the context that I'm in now. We're Marie Kondoing our stuff. Did you see that about Marie Kondo saying she no longer Marie Kondo since she's had children? wonder how many people just breathed a huge sigh of relief when they read that. I felt like that was really important, actually, what happened with that, because I feel like so many of us see people like that online. And I think a lot of it is unconscious, as you were saying. Like we see it and we just start to believe that we should be doing rolling and, and our house should look a certain way. And we get sold these messages. It's going to bring you joy. Well, I want joy. And then for her to say, and I actually really, really honor and respect that she said it. Yes, yeah, totally. I mean, that's her career, yeah. Yeah, it's her career that she said, actually, I don't do this anymore. My joy is coming from my three kids. I thought it was just like a big hurrah moment for every, let's face it, probably woman out there. I just thought it was incredible. I thought it was really good. In my head, we've been talking about quite an individual parenting experience. Where I have found this the most complex is when guy walks in to stage left. This is where, for me, it gets hard. I love how he walks in from stage left because one of the things I talk about in the book is heroes and villains, right? That kind of idea that we can have these sort of almost fantasy fairy tales and who are you in that story, right? Are you, are you the hero? Sorry. He's my hero <laughs> and my villain guy. He said something the other day really profound about my parenting and what something I was repeating that I didn't want to. And I was like, wow, like he's amazing at mirroring back. Also, he has, you know, as we all do, he has his own stuff in his cupboard that comes out in different ways that sometimes clashes with how I want to do it. And I find getting on the same parenting page is something that parenting experts have told us for a long, long, long time. But the more that I think about it, the more I think about in my personal experience, what an impossible task that actually is. Because how are we going to be on the same page about every single thing that comes up? So Jessie came home the other day and someone had said something to her into the playground. And so I'm going, well, how did that make you feel? And what would you have liked to have said? And Guy comes in and she tells him and he says something completely opposite. And oh, well, you just need to do this. That happens all the time in our house because I think it's human that we don't have the same opinion on anything paint color holidays it's always a compromise and a coming together what you just said there is so important we don't have the same opinions on anything and it's always a compromise that's your answer right there right we're not robots like you said before we're not going to agree on everything we're not going to be on the same page all the time the important thing is how do we find a compromise how do we come together as these two very different people who might have very different views and find compromise. And actually, one of the other narratives that's been around for a very long time is this idea, and it's really around everywhere. And when I was writing the book and kind of started looking into attachment in much more depth, this idea that we're talking about a parent-child couple, we're talking about a dyad, two people, 
very rarely in conversations about parenting do we talk about the impact of more than one caregiver on a child, yet that is how the vast majority of children are brought up. And I'm not just talking about parenting couples, I'm talking about multi-generational households, lots of kids are growing up not just with their parents or caregivers, they might also have aunties and uncles in the house, they might have grandparents in the house, cousins around the world. You know, it's much more common for children to be brought up in what is called attachment networks. You know, it's not just about the parent-child dyad, which is usually actually what's written about is the mother-child dyad. That misconception is something that has created so much pressure on women, first of all, that sense that actually if we want to have a good outcome for our child, then we as mother are the fundamental root of everything that is going to go well for this child. So I think that that in itself, which is a fallacy, you know, that in itself has created so much pressure for women. But it's also really excluded dads or partners, other caregivers from thinking about what their impact is on that child or what their relationship is with that child. What I hear so often is women in heterosexual relationships where a woman has gone and done so much developmental work, has really thought about her parenting, is really all in on social media, listening to wonderful podcasts, which, you know, there isn't a father kind podcast, you know, men often don't have as much access to this stuff and also aren't brought up to self-reflect in the same way that those socialised as women up and are. And what can then end up happening is that that in itself can cause a conflict because, you know, a woman can feel like her partner is kind of not on board or he's kind of slightly been left behind. It's very common. It's something that comes up in discussions in the village group that I run all the time, that sense of, I feel like I know what I'm doing as a parent. I feel like, you know, I've kind of got the tools. I know what I'm aiming for, but actually I can't get my partner on board or actually... It's not just that I can't get them on board, it's causing us a lot of conflict. And that in itself is going to cause a lot of problems in that we know that parental conflict can be really difficult for children to cope with and can create a lot of stress in the home. But again, going back to your first point, how do we then find compromise? Because actually there is something in there about that idea of idealisation, about perfectionism, that we're going to raise this child in the best possible way. And that is going to be me as primary caregiver who is going to be doing this for this child. Again, it kind of slightly excludes the child from their part in that and their part in that relationship. But also what we know from attachment network research is that what a child will then do is think, well, that's mum's opinion, that's dad's opinion, what's my opinion? You know, the more that we can encourage that in a child, you know, they are very adaptable, flexible humans. So they will know that mum says this and dad says this and they will learn that actually when I want to have this kind of response, maybe I'm going to go to mum, maybe when I want dad to kind of bolster me a bit, maybe I'll go to dad. And of course, that might be different roles in different households. But children will kind of learn how to get the best from their attachment network. Where it falls into difficulty is when we're in a lot of conflict about the difference. You know, how do we kind of come to terms with the fact that there is difference? I think there's a different part of the question as well, which is what if that difference is actually causing problems? You know, what if the parent that you can't quite get on board actually is parenting in a way that feels damaging or harmful in some way? That's where I think we need to get other people involved in order to be able to find ways to bridge that difference in a safe way that feels like it doesn't just become a couple conflict, you know, that it becomes a conversation about how we're going to compromise if we can find that compromise. In the book, I talk about the kind of idea that we have maps, right? We have our own maps. 
that we kind of grow up with that are handed to us from our previous generations that involve, you know, our kind of intergenerational history. It also involves our own childhood history, who we are now as adults, lots of other stuff that's going on in our life. Our partner also has their own map. And often we've kind of built a bridge between those two maps without even realising. It's almost like we have this bridge that's there in our couple relationship before we have children. And the bridge is based on those kind of unspoken agreements that we often have as couples. If we know, as we've talked about, that when we become parents, all of that stuff, you know, really kind of comes up and becomes very raw and present, what can often happen is that bridge starts to crumble. You know, the bridge between the two maps can fall apart a little bit. We can then get into this situation where we're going, follow my map. No, I need to follow my map. Why are you talking about your map? Because actually my map's the best map and we need to go this way. When actually what we need to be focusing on is how we're going to rebuild that bridge. And it might look very different to the bridge that we expected, but finding ways to compromise, to communicate, to be able to explain, but this is what's on my map and this is why following this bit of my map feels really important to me. So can you please cross over onto my map sometimes? And actually, you know, being able to hear from our partner too. Well, yeah, I get that. But actually this bit of my map that you seem to really disagree with because you don't have anything that looks like that on your map actually feels really important to me too. So in that way, we're bringing together both maps with this bridge that might look very different to what we anticipated. I also talk in the book about there being kind of a troll under the bridge, you know, and that's what can really pop out when we're having these conversations where it can feel really fraught, really tense. If you imagine both of you as a couple that actually your challenge is not to convince each other to follow your map, it's to work together to be able to beat the troll under the bridge and actually be able to cross over very easily onto each other's maps. It means that the problem is the troll. It's not either one of you. And of course, the goal is that your child is able to cross over and use both of your maps. That would be our ultimate goal. It is complex, isn't it? And I think two things I just want to reflect on what you said is first, I think it is interesting and challenging that with this mass of parenting content, it seems to me that it's mostly mothers consuming it. I think we are upskilling, upleveling, and we have way more knowledge than our male counterparts. And I know that to be true because when I ask people like Dr. Becky, what percentage of your audience in your membership are mothers? It's very, very, very high. I have no doubt the majority of people buying, reading, doing the work in your book will be mothers. And I think that's almost becoming like another part of the mental load, isn't it? In that we're holding all these parenting strategies and ideas and then our male counterparts just aren't sat up at 11 p.m. reading the book. I'm generalizing. Of course, I'm generalizing. But these are the general trends that I'm seeing in our marriage. Actually, it's not truly fair. Guy does have weekly therapy as well. But it tends to be me up at 11. You know, Jesse's struggling with this what of my own episodes do I need to listen to, which I do quite often, or it's another part of that invisible labor that I think mothers are doing. And I think that is problematic. Yes. The other part that I find really interesting that you say, and this has been my big shift, is that I have come to see that the differences in how Guy and I parent, I no longer spend so much time and energy trying to get him to see it my way or for me to see it his way. 
I've started to think, well, my relationship with the girls is my relationship with the girls. His relationship with the girls is his relationship with the girls. If I choose to do more emotional validation and he doesn't want to do that, that's okay. And I might change my mind on that, but that's where I am now. Right now in this moment, that's how I see it. And actually, before we had kids, I said to a couple of therapists that we were seeing, I feel so worried because Guy and I have really different world maps. And she said, that is a gift to your children. And I remember crying, thinking I had never thought that it was a gift that they have someone who is you know, Guy is really efficient and smart and successful in everything that he does, basically. And then there's me who's sort of very feeling, very sensitive, very, instead of trying to create this perfect thing in the middle, it's like, can I just allow both of us to do it in our own way, knowing that the girls are going to get to see two different ways of approaching a problem? That was a massive relief for me. I was like, okay, you know, one of the big messages, I guess, of the book is that when you feel like you understand yourself and where you're coming from, what tends to happen is that you find your own solutions to things. And we do that with our children all the time. If you think about that kind of ideal emotional validation setup or scenario that we're often aiming for, essentially what happens is that we're allowing our child to go through that emotional response, that initial automatic reaction, then get those frontal lobes back online. And then they do their own problem solving. And children do that from a very, very young age, because they often know we have an instinct about what we feel is best for us. And we can guide a little bit if we completely disagree. But problem solving and critical thinking, those are really important tools that we can also give our children. And we don't really have to work at that. That is something that comes very naturally to children who are curious and experimental little humans. Essentially, it's just doing the same thing, isn't it? It's being able to think, well, if I can allow that difference to be there, then we're encouraging our children to find their own solutions. They can take the bit from, you know, one parent that they really like and that kind of feels like it resonates with them. They get that bit from their other parent that resonates with them. And actually what they end up doing is that they create their own thing entirely. And of course, there are going to be parts of both of you that they just cast off completely. And we also have to just be okay with that. It's not necessarily about the difference. Like we were saying before, it's about the conflict, about the difference. Yes, that's what's changed for me. There's no longer conflict. about The difference has not changed, really, maybe a couple of degrees on each side of us. But there's no conflict about it now. Yes. And it's that conflict when you're sort of grappling with that kind of argument about whose map you're going to follow. But much more, actually, both of those maps are totally valid. But like we said at the beginning, we do also need to know what's on those maps. And that can sometimes feel difficult if we have a partner who's not really willing or prepared to look at what's on their map. I mean, it might just be coming up unconsciously what you said before Zoe about the I mean we could do a whole other episode on the mental load of women parenting you know doing that kind of parenting development and growth work because I think you're right I think it has become part of the emotional labor of women I will say that I do think that is changing so in thinking about the kind of referrals that I receive in thinking about the questions that I get I think that the generations that are now having children actually have quite different attitudes to equity of division of labour in the home, to equity in parenting roles. 
we are still up against a lot of systemic difficulty and systemic obstacles with that because there are lots of different reasons that you know in terms of policy and workplace policies and things like that that do make it really hard to have uh, gender equality at home but there is a really interesting piece of research that's around how what lots of couples experience when they become parents for the first time is a conflict between your goals as a couple, which is often around equity, you know, not necessarily equality, but feeling like both people are getting what they need from the relationship and there is equity in, in a kind of how those things are done and our current modern parenting goals. That research particularly focuses on attachment parenting or intensive parenting, you know, what lots of researchers have talked about, what might look like from the outside, that sort of authoritative parenting that actually can very easily tip over into intensive parenting where we're getting a lot of our sense of self-worth or value from our parenting goals or outcomes. And that conflict in itself, you know, because if in our couple relationship, we have a goal that we are both going to trust each other as individuals, that we're going to have equity in our relationship, a modern couple goal is that there is a kind of independence, but equality, let's say, that really conflicts with lots of the parenting goals that are out there, parenting aspirations around, for example, attachment parenting, a woman is going to be close to that baby all of the time, you know, extended breastfeeding, for example, maybe being one of those goals. Often because we don't know, again, that's a kind of unconscious conflict, when we don't know that that is a conflict, we can just be grappling with each other without really knowing why. Once we understand what our values are, now that we are a parenting couple, now that we're not a couple kind of aiming for our pre-parenting couple goals but thinking about well what are our values now as a family and how do they fit contrast or conflict with where our individual goals before it means that we can then make some of those more conscious choices about how we actually want to parent and does that serve us does that suit us that kind of parenting aspiration if it conflicts with the things that felt good for us before how do we maybe want to tweak that in a way that is still going to suit us as a couple Does that make sense? It does. And it's a really big, big, big. I mean, I think about this. I'm sure like you do. I think about this every day. It's such a current issue. I've been asked about the most. And it's really complex because, you know, I believe there is a part of mothering. I had this desire when I became a mother, biological desire to hold my babies very very close you know and I think that is then complex as you say with this well hang on no because I don't want to be sat at home for three years on the sofa breastfeeding that doesn't feel right to me but that's what my body feels it's it's very 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 complex well, it is, and we can have a conversation about the fallacy of maternal instinct. That's a whole yes, other... Yes, I've done an episode on that. Oh, yes, you have, with Chelsea, yes. Conway, yeah, really, yes, really good. Conway, really yes, good episode. Yeah, her book is amazing. It is amazing. Maternal instinct is not a thing. It's, yeah, fascinating. I knew that this conversation would be deep and would be meaningful and would have such nuance in it which is just what you bring to the work which I just so value is you're the antithesis to the quick five tips and I love that where can someone find out more about you the book other things you might want to talk about so um, dremmasvanberg.com is my website or I am mammologist on instagram 
which I talk about all of my work on there. And the book is available at kind of all the usual bookshops. I've also very recently set up with another colleague, Rebecca Sharcross, at the a cooperative, the psychology cooperative. So that's where people can find out about our work if they're interested in therapy or psychoeducational resources. All of that is now on thepsychologycooperative.com. Amazing. And I know lots of the people that you've got in that cooperative and it is a stellar team of people that you have gathered. And I think I, what I love that you've done that is it stops that awful like Googling. If you need a therapist, please don't just randomly start Googling people. Go and see who's on there on Emma's cooperative. Thank you so much. And please, everyone, do go and check out the book. It's a gift to us all. Thank you, Zoe. It's been so lovely chatting to you. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. 